Welcome to the Howie Silbiger Show on the True Talk Radio Network. Get in on the conversation. Call 1-877-669-1292. So the attack on Jews in Montreal continues. As two more Jewish institutions were attacked this week, the Vadir, the Rabbinical Council, the Jewish Community Council of Canada, and Komomonid, a Jewish private school, one of them firebombed, Molotov cocktail thrown through their window, the other one graffitied with anti-Israel slogans, this follows attacks on the Jewish community throughout the month, including two shots fired at a yeshiva, one shot fired at a Jewish school, one shot fired at a Jewish community center, a firebomb thrown at a synagogue and at a Jewish community center. This, this is an unprecedented amount of attacks on the Jewish community in Montreal. Uh, I don't think the Jewish community in Montreal has faced these kinds of attacks in many, many years. And what does that say for the culture of the city of Montreal? The mayor keeps getting up after every one of these attacks. The mayor keeps getting up and saying, this is not what Montreal is. But I'm not so sure that the mayor understands what Montreal is. I'm not so sure that the mayor understands the underlying current of anti-Jewism that exists in the city of Montreal and has existed for a very, very long time and has manifested itself in many different ways. There were periods in the last decade or so, surely periods in the last three decades that we've been doing this show, where Jews were attacked in subway stations, where Jews were attacked on the street, where Jews, Jewish buildings were attacked with rocks thrown the build, through, through the windows of synagogues, with firebombs thrown into restaurants, into kosher restaurants, with graffiti all over the place, swastikas, kill the Jews, massacre the Jews, with a Nazi propaganda, Nazi propaganda being sold on a, uh, in a store on Park Avenue, right next to the Hasidic neighborhood of Jews. Oh, Jew hatred has existed in Montreal a long time, Miss Mayor Plant. It's listed a very, it's been here a very long time. And what has the city done to try to stem this? Well, it's done the exact same thing that Concordia University has done to try to stem this. Way back in 2015, I was a student at Concordia University. I was finishing off a degree. And I was attending university on a daily basis. At one point in my education, I had to take courses in the downtown campus of Concordia University, downtown Montreal. And I walked into the building, and as I walked through the building, I was accosted by a young man wearing an Arabic headdress, a kafiyah. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm sorry, you have to take your Jew cap off. You're an Islamic university. You can't wear that in this university. 
well, he picked on the wrong guy. I'm not the kind of guy who's going to get intimidated. I'm not the kind of guy who's going to rip my keep off my head. I'm not the kind of guy who's going to do that. He picked the wrong guy. And I looked at him, I said, if you want me to take my yarmulke off my head, if you want me to remove my keeper, then you are the one who's going to have to take it off me. Because either you're going to take it off my live body or you're going to take it off my cold dead body, but I'm not taking it off. You want it off me, you come and take it off me. And he took a step forward. So I took a step forward. There is nobody who's going to intimidate me. I'm not scared of anybody. And I said, buddy, you have one chance to take it off my head. If you don't get it off my head in that one opportunity I'm giving you right now, I am going to put you on the floor and I am going to put my knee on your neck and I will remove it when the police pull me off of you or when you take your last breath. The choice is yours. At that point, he backed off. That night, I posted my story on Facebook. I said, this is what happened to me today. It was a weird day. This is what happened. I got a call from Bill 613, which at the time was a relatively decent news site. They don't, they don't exist anymore, but at the time they were a decently decent Jewish news site. And they asked me if they could print the story on their site, if they could forward the story onto their site. And I said, sure, why not? And they did. And it went viral. Everybody picked up the story. Now, the funny part about this was, this story actually happened, and it was the Jews on campus, on Concordia, who started posting comments on the story saying that I was a liar, that this never really happened. And then I made it up, and I was trying to boost listenership on my radio show. <laughs> Not true at all. I personally couldn't care less how many people listen to the radio show, to be honest. It's not really a motivating factor for me that there are thousands of people listening. I do the show. I'm honest on the show. I tell you the truth. And I hope that you appreciate that, and that's why you listen. But if everybody decided to stop listening at the same time, there's nothing I could do about that. So that doesn't worry me at all. So to try to boost my ratings by faking a hate crime? No, no, that's not something I would do. And the question was, why did I not report this to campus security? Why, why, did I, why did I just walk away? Why didn't I report this? Why didn't I make a big deal about this on campus? So I'll tell you. After the, after the report came out on Bill 613 the next day, my phone rang about 9 o'clock in the morning. It was Yisrael Bernath, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath from Chabad NDG. He's the chaplain of the universities uh, of the university. He's the Jewish chaplain of the university. And Yisrael Bernath called me and said to me, Howie, I heard what happened. I read it on uh, Bill 613. And I'm begging you, please do not report this to campus security. Do not file an official complaint. Because if you file an official complaint, he said, then... You are putting other Jews in campus on danger because, in danger because they will be attacked by the same kind of people that attacked you, and they may not have the same resolve that you had. 
to stand up to their attackers, and other Jews will be victimized if you report it. The retaliation is going to cause more attacks. So please do not report it. I will set you up, he said, with a, um, with, with a meeting with the Dino students where you could discuss the issue of anti-Jewism on campus, of anti-Semitism on campus, he said. And, and uh, he will deal with the problem that you're dealing with without filing an official complaint. I thought it was a little cowardly. I was ready to file the complaint. I thought it would be interesting to file the complaint and have security investigate the incident and catch the perpetrator who is probably a Concordia student and see the punishment of the perpetrator would have been fun. Would have been a little bit of poetic, a little bit of justice. But for whatever reason, and I'm still not sure what it was, I listened to Rabbi Bernath and I did not report the incident. But true to his word, Rabbi Bernath set up a meeting between me and the Dina students. I went to the Dina students office, which is ironically located in the former offices of the Concordia Student Union. And the Dina students sat with me for about 20 minutes. And in the time he sat with me, he assured me that he would be working with Chabad of NDG, with uh, Rabbi Bernath, the chaplain of Concordia. And they would put together some kind of a program which would promote a reconciliation between Jews and Muslims. It would be some kind of a unity program. And that would be forthcoming uh, very soon. So that if we educated everybody about different religions and if everybody understood each other and everybody hung out together, uh, incidents like the ones that happened to me would never happen again at Concordia. And it was actually a half-decent idea. It was half-baked, but it was half-decent. And I said, sure. Okay. I said, if you want me to be involved in the organization of it, I would be more than happy to volunteer my time to organize an event which would bring together all the communities at Concordia and which would allow a reconciliation and maybe foster some kind of peace between the groups at Concordia. He said, I'll be in touch. That was in 2015. We are now in 2023. And I'm still waiting for his call. So this problem of anti-Jewism in this city has been around for a very, very long time. In 1990s, when I was at Concordia, in the late 1990s, the same anti-Jewism that existed then still exists today. We called it Gaza U then, it's still Gaza U today. Now, I don't begrudge people from the Middle East coming to Montreal to learn in a decent university. That doesn't bother me. I don't begrudge any student who wants to better themselves, any person who wants to better themselves through education. I don't begrudge that either. And if a certain group of students decide, a certain group from a community of students decide that they want to go to a certain university, I'm good with that too. That doesn't bother me at all. I couldn't care less what the percentage of students uh, of any nationality at any university is. It's irrelevant to me. But when a certain group of students decide to make the university dangerous, scary, for other groups of students, that's where I have an issue. 
So when a group of Arab students on campus decide that they are the superior race and they are going to make the inferior race in their mind, the Jews, suffer on campus, I have an issue with that. Remember a few years ago on this show, on this show right here, we got a call from a student at Ryerson University who, well, they don't call it Ryerson anymore, excuse me, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. They took Ryerson, they ripped Ryerson's name off the university because allegedly he had some slaves or something. I don't know, whatever. But a student at Ryerson called and told me on the air, in the middle of a phone, phone call, it was a cold phone call, I didn't set it up, told me that she was a member of Hillel on campus and that Hillel had to do all their activities inside in a locked room for fear of being attacked because they were doing Jewish cultural activities on campus. Now, the anti-Jewite that exists on university campuses, the anti-Jewite that exists in our society, the anti-Jewites that stand in the streets and yell from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, all believe in the exact same thing. It has nothing to do with the liberation of Palestine. It has nothing to do with the Arab-Israel conflict. It has nothing to do with politics at all. The people standing in the street and yelling and screaming for the death and the gassing of Jews, the people standing in the street and applauding Hamas, who committed a genocidal attack against Jews on October 7th, massacring people, cutting their heads off, burning their bodies, killing babies, and then kidnapped, took hostage, men, women, and babies. The people supporting them in the streets and calling it legitimate resistance, kidnapping a six-month-old baby is legitimate resistance. These are the anti-Jewites. These are the Jew-haters. And they live amongst us. Nobody in Germany thought that the Nazis' ideas of destroying the Jewish people would come to fruition. Nobody in Germany dreamt in the 19, early 1930s that they would, in just a few years, turn in their bosses, their neighbors, their friends to a genocidal organization that eventually murdered them. Nobody dreamt in the early 1930s, late 1920s, in the early 1930s, that this is what would happen. Yet that's what happened. And why did it happen? Because leaders and leadership figures, they instilled this, this sense of, of, uh, of hatred that was an underlying presence, that had an underlying presence within the German society. And as long as this presence existed in the German society, and as long as it was an undercurrent that was constantly there, when the government decided that this was it, we want to get rid of our Jews, that undercurrent was already there. They didn't have very much convincing to do to the population. They didn't have to twist the population's arms to go and turn their Jews in so they could be killed. It didn't take very long after expelling the Jews from their homes, after ripping them out of their homes and stealing all their belongings, 
foreigner neighbors and friends to move into the houses to take over, to erase the existence of the Jewish people. Didn't take very long. Didn't take long in Germany, didn't take long in Poland, didn't take long in Austria. Didn't take long in Czechoslovakia. Didn't take very long. And then, 50 years after the massacre of, of, of the Jewish population of Europe, I had the opportunity to go to Poland to visit the concentration camps, the death camps, the, the, the incineration camps. The real concentration camps, not the concentration camps like Gaza that have five-star hotels in them, but the real concentration camps of the Nazis. And in my experience in Poland, seeing the Jew hatred that still existed 50 years after the last Polish Jew was massacred, the hatred of the Jewish people that still existed there was palatable. The looks we got, the comments we got, the folk art that we saw on the streets of caricatures of Jews with big noses and long ears and, 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 and sideburns, unmistakably a portrait of a Jewish person. In a country that hadn't seen Jews in substantial numbers in over 50 years, that hatred still existed. So if there's an undercurrent of hatred towards the Jews, which there is pretty much around the world. This is a this is a common theme for the Jewish people. This is how our history has uh, has evolved, and this is how the diaspora of the Jews have has has ruled has ruled for thousands of years. We move into a country, we're successful, we live peacefully amongst the people. The people rise up, they murder us, and we move out. That's that's generally the way it works. But today. I think the Jewish population has learned their lesson. I think the lessons of the Holocaust exist, and I think that Jewish people understand the lessons of the Holocaust, at least some of us do. And we see the danger that exists in North America, in the diaspora. We see the danger. And when we see it, we understand that we can't be silent. So when an organization like Hamas comes around, and, and, and I've been yelling about Hamas for years, and the Jewish population in the state of Israel have kind of been ignoring them, but I've been yelling for years that Hamas's charter calls for the massacre of Jews anywhere they live in the world. Anywhere in the world. All Jews, everywhere in the world. So an organization that has a stated purpose of genocide goes and actually commits genocide, I wasn't overly surprised. Everyone was saying, wow, that's shocking. Look what Hamas did. And I wasn't surprised at all. This organization has been telling us since 1989 that their main goal, their, their main objective, their purpose in life is to murder Jews, is to annihilate Jews, is to commit the genocide against the Jewish people. Why would you or anybody else be surprised that that's what they're doing? That if they had the opportunity, they would have killed every single man, woman, and child in Israel, on October 7th. They had enough manpower, they had the opportunity, they would have gone through the entire country and killed every single person there. Because when they yelled from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that calls for the elimination of the state of Israel and the genocide of the people of Israel. But people were surprised. How could you be surprised? 
It does. You don't have to read very far into the charter to see Hamas say, our goal is to kill the Jews, to eliminate Jews wherever they live. If a tree calls out, hey, Jew, hey, hey, Muslim fighter, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Then the Muslim fighter should come and kill the Jew. That's what their charter says. They said it themselves. And this is one of the big things. You know, when our enemies say that they're coming to kill us, we have to believe them. There is no reason for us to doubt our enemies when they say, we want to kill you. We want to commit a genocide. We want to be genocidal. We want to kill you. We want to commit a genocide against Jewish people. Why would you doubt them? The last people to say that were the Nazis. And you know what? There was no reason to doubt them either. And they proved their point. And once they proved their point, then we should accept the fact that the point was proven. We should get the point. We should understand. And we should recognize when the next Nazi party comes up, and they're, they're Hamas, they're the next Nazi party. When the next Nazi party comes up and says, we are going to kill you all. We're going to murder you all. Then we should accept that that's what they want to do. And that's what they're going to do. Given the opportunity, that's what they're going to do. Why do we always believe people when they say nice things about us, but we disbelieve them when they say they want to murder us? I understand Western culture and Middle Eastern culture are very different. I get it. And I get it that most Westerners don't understand Middle Eastern culture. And I understand that when uh, Middle Eastern countries behave in ways that allow for their strengths to be shown, to, you know, to, to prove the point in Middle Eastern culture, Western, Western civilization goes nuts. There is a reason that Hamas videotaped the brutal massacre of Jews on October 7th. And it wasn't to show the media. They didn't want the media to see that. They did it on their GoPros. They, 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 they recorded everything. Their entire murderous campaign was recorded. It was videotaped. The last people to do that were the Nazis. But I digress. I'll stop comparing them to the Nazis, even though they are the modern-day Nazis. I'll stop comparing them to the Nazis. At least for another, for, at least for the next two minutes. The reason they videotaped their atrocities wasn't for you and me, wasn't for politicians to look at it and say, oh, those poor dead Jews. The reason they videotaped murder, the rapes, the burnings of bodies, burning people alive, the beheadings, the reason they videotaped them was so they could show other radical Islamic groups this is the strength we have over the Israelis. Right is made by might. Look how mighty we are. We massacred the Jews. Not only do we massacre them, look what we did to them. We humiliated the women by raping them. We killed them. We beheaded their babies. That's how strong we are. And that was the point of that October 7th massacre. To show the strength of Hamas. To show the world, to show the other Islamic groups that Hamas is the strongest one out there. And they're untouchable. Nobody's going to beat Hamas. Look what we did to the Israelis with all their armies, with all the money they have, with all the military equipment they have, with everything they own. Look what we managed to do. 1,500 people are dead. 
Look, we beheaded them. We raped their women. We raped their children. We killed families and sat at their tables and ate the meals that they were about to eat. While they were lying on the floor bleeding on our feet. That's what we did. That's what they were proud of. I don't hold any empathy or sympathy for the people being affected by the Israeli incursion to Gaza. Because after they finished their bloody, genocidal, Nazi-like massacre of the Jews in southern Israel, these Gazans took hostage over 200 people. And as they drove them into Gaza, civilians in Gaza stood there cheering. There's video of it. If you don't believe me, look up the video. They stood there cheering. They started hitting, punching, and kicking the hostages, spitting on them. Now, Hamas is trying to depict their the hostages as being kept in, the, in humane conditions. But reports are coming out about beatings, about, about not having food, but being starved. Reports are coming out about children being branded by motorcycle exhaust. They're being put on motorcycles and being burned, their legs being burned by motorcycle exhaust. So in case they try to run away, they could pick them out of a crowd. <clears throat> It is so sickening. It's unbelievably sickening. Reports are coming out that United Nations relief workers were holding hostages in their homes. That teachers working for the United Nations were holding hostages for Hamas. If you ever thought even for a second, that the United Nations cared about Jewish children, about Jews in general, about, about, about Israel at all, a member state. Just remember that employees of the United Nations living in Gaza were holding Israeli babies hostage. I'm too sickened to even think about it. Thank you for joining me. I'm Howie Silberger. I'll see you again next time right here on, on, on TrueTalkRadio.com. I, uh, I invite you to email me. You want to talk to me, email me, Howie at TrueTalkRadio.com. Love to uh, hear from you. I answer all my emails. So if you send me an email, I'll answer you. Till next time, have a great night.